Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host, Nav C. And I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape, and reform ongoing narratives. The starting point for this episode is one of the most iconic moments in the annals of sporting history. The date is September the 24th, 1988. The venue is the Olympic Stadium in Seoul, South Korea, and we're moments away from the start of the men's 100 metres final. Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson was pitted against current Olympic champion and fierce rival Carl Lewis and an all-star lineup of top athletes. And each athlete paced up and down trying to gain a psychological advantage over the rest of the field by settling into the blocks first. Johnson looked menacingly focused as he stared straight ahead without blinking and eventually it was he who won the initial battle. Because as a starting gun fired, it was, Canadian, it was the Canadian sprinter who literally exploded from his starting position into an unassailable lead, which he would never lose. And it took just 9.7 seconds later, and he had obliterated the world record in a display of power and awe-inspiring theatre, which had never been seen before in track and field. And it was done so against the greatest field of sprinters ever assembled at that point. And what happened next has been seared into the collective memory of the Olympics ever since. The images from the subsequent medal ceremony show the favourite Carl Lewis grudgingly shaking hands with arch-rival Johnson. However, the Canadians' victory celebration was short-lived because just 24 hours later, it was reported that Ben Johnson had failed a, a drugs test due to traces of the banned steroid stanozolol being found in a urine sample and following the test Johnson was stripped of the title and forced to hand back the medal to officials from the IOC the International Olympic Committee subsequently Carl Lewis was awarded the gold medal Linford Christie the silver and Calvin Smith the bronze however Ben Johnson's world record time of 9.79 seconds, as remarkable as it was for its display of explosive power, marked the beginning rather than the end of the story. Because, as it turns out, Johnson wouldn't be the only one marred by doping allegations. And we can turn to uh, author Richard Moore in his book, The Dirtiest Race in History, which he argues that the doping at that point was so rife within the sport that six of the eight finalists at that time that had lined up on that September day in Seoul would later all fail drugs tests themselves or were implicated in their use during their careers, including Lewis and Christie. And to this day, Ben Johnson is embittered by official proceedings which occurred in the immediate aftermath of the event and the manner in which he was left high and dry by the IOC and also the subsequent inquiry held in Canada. And he described this moment as a low point in his life because he was sent back to Canada as a disgraced athlete and his reputation as a, as a top 
athlete was in tatters. So this is the context for today's episode in relation to the unparalleled contrast between the fate of two arch rivals, Ben Johnson and Carl Lewis, and how they both went separate ways. The former Johnson going back to Canada labeled a drug cheat and Lewis being celebrated as a famous Olympian. And in this episode, we explore a brief history behind cheating in sports the psychology behind cheating, a brief background to performance-enhancing drugs, which hereafter we refer to as PEDs, the ethics behind cheating, and then we'll examine the most common argument put forward in the discussion on drug use in sports, which is it represents a form of cheating. And we intend to show how this widespread argument that doping is a form of cheating is actually a misconception based on poorly constructed ideas of rule violation and comparative disadvantage based solely on moral judgment. And we also highlight how the process of drug use in sports simply cannot operate in a one-dimensional system because there are a host of factors involved which are completely independent of the sport itself. And finally, we ask, is it time to level the playing field regarding the use of PEDs? But first, before we get to the main section, I'll ask Navsi to, bring, to begin her piece on the historical examples of cheating. Thank you, Navem. Cheating in sports started as early as the very first Olympic Games in 1896. Uh, there is evidence that individuals would bribe, blackmail and intimidate fellow athletes. Drug testing was introduced in 1962 after the IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee, began seeing the first effects of performance-enhancing drugs or doping. And just to clarify, doping is defined as the use of illicit substances and methods to enhance one's performance, example, example steroids or blood doping. These days, testing for performance-enhancing drugs, or PEDs, is routine and has a unified approach. WADA, or the World Anti-Doping Agency, was established in 1999 as an independent arm arm of the IOC to to stay at the forefront of anti-drug use in sports. Track and field athletics is not the only sport where participants have been convicted of illegal drug use. Some of the biggest names in uh, sports have been at the center of doping scandals, including women's tennis star Maria Sharapova, American sprinter Tyson Gay, American track and field sprinter Marion Jones, men's soccer star Diego Maradona, Uh, boxer Roy Jones Jr. And of course, one of the biggest scandals of modern times, cyclist and sports icon Lance Armstrong, who was stripped of multiple achievements, including seven Tour de France titles. Another noteworthy cause uh, was the Chinese gymnast at the Sydney 2000 Olympics, where speculation was rife that certain team members were underage. More recently, Russia was barred from the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar. The latest punishments in response to a mass state-sponsored doping program where officials were complicit in uh, manipulating doping test results between 2011 to 2015. This culminated in the 2014 uh, Winter Olympics, where officials were accused of fabricating evidence to cover up the use of banned substances by the country's athletes. Now, let's review the 
origins of drug use in competitive sports and also a brief background of uh, PEDs or performance-enhancing drugs. For centuries, athletes have sought a chemical edge to improve various aspects of their physical training. The Asian Greeks used special diets such as alcoholic concussions and hallucinogenic mushrooms to enhance their sporting skills and competitive athletic ability. Human communities have engaged in sports activities for reasons as diverse as amusement, religious worship and political stability. The ancient Sumerians and Egyptians practiced sports to prepare themselves for war. So did the Romans, for whom sport had important religious and social significance. Similarly, in the the Mayan civilization, ball games served religious, social and political purpose in order to provide a common bond between communities while avoiding conflict from other diverse cultures. In the 19th century, cyclists and other endurance athletes dabbed in molecules such as strychnine, caffeine, and cocaine. But doping exploded in the 20th century with Uh, advances in molecular biology and pharmacology. Taking stimulants uh, was an accepted practice when Thomas Hicks won the 1904 Olympic marathon race and almost died after a mixture of brandy and strychnine, uh, which helped him reach the finish line. The Olympics began prohibiting drug drug taking in the 1960s, but has long struggled to keep up with the dopers. The most popular methods have included blood doping via injections of the hormones or blood transfusions or taking anabolic steroids or human growth hormones. Growth hormones was first isolated from the human pituitary gland in the 1950s. It's Anabolic effects were soon recognized and athletes began to use it wholesale by the early 1960s. Drug use is as old as sports itself, but in recent decades, the phenomenon has grown even more sophisticated. As our understanding of molecular biology, biochemistry, pharmacology and medicine improves, athletes become even more creative in their approach to take uh, to these new advancements. This leads us to what are the psychological reasons which cause these athletes to cheat? In the next section, we'll talk um, at the psychology of cheaters in sports. Let's start with some key factors uh, in the psychology of sports cheating. Now, why do people cheat in sports? Research findings offer an insight into the competitive nature of sports and the ethical problems involved with cheating. There are two main factors which offer an alternative perspective into why athletes are prepared to cheat. The first factor is the focus on winning. Sports represents an important part of a modern view of society and accordingly a linchpin of interpersonal communication between athletes, coaches, teams and fans. Fans become so involved that they often experience pre-game anxiety and often blame losses on biased officials or the presence of cheating. At a professional level, winning is a necessary ingredient in the pursuit of excellence, and some athletes are prepared to take this further than the others. Competitive sports will place these individuals in conflicting situations, and the emphasis on winning 
over sportsmanship and fair play alters the scope of ethics for some athletes. However, this level of thinking cannot solely be attributed to the competitive nature of sports because there are other factors at play and the next section helps us to explain how athletics may turn to cheating. Now going to the second factor, which is the ego and moral functioning. The concept of achieving once goals is closely linked to the opportunities available to cheat in sports. We can distinguish between task and ego-oriented goals in relation to how athletes think of themselves and why, and why they want to compete. Task-oriented athletes focus on hard work and self-development, while ego-oriented athletes are focused on being better than everyone else and believe skill to be a matter of innate ability. They usually have lower sportsmanship levels, more self-reported cheating, and rarely experience guilt after engaging in the unethical behaviors. Now, let's look at why do people cheat in sports? At the heart of this issue is a fundamental desire to win because at the highest level of sport, the difference between first and second place equates to millions of dollars and the opportunity for fame. As a result, some athletes believe winning is the only goal worth pursuing and the risk of getting caught is worth the money and the glory that comes with being the best. In the case of cyclist Lance Armstrong, who lost everything after being stripped of his achievements and titles, he later told journalists that despite hefty legal costs estimated around $100 million, at the peak of his career, he was earning $28 million a year, according to the Forbes magazine. Asked if it was all worth it, he replied that if he went back to 1995, he would probably do it all over again. So we also know that open cheating occurs all the time. Examples of this are the basketball player who nudges a shooter below the belt while the eyes uh, of the referee are on the ball. The soccer player who prevents a goal by deliberately tripping the opposing striker the goalkeeper who digs up turf before a penalty shootout, or a cricket bowlers who engage in ball tampering. However, there is also secret cheating, which involves the use of drugs, which enable an athlete to com- compete over his or her normal ability. Uh, deliberate bad plays by athletes who have been bribed to lose or betting against themselves. Illegal equipment or any other rule violations the cheater thinks he or she can get away with. It's also true that good cheating is considered to be an art. When cheating is done well, it is very difficult to discover because it remains undetected for a long period of time. Interestingly, despite the prevalence of cheating with professional sports, sociologists have pointed to the fact that sport is far less deviant than other sections of society. Take, for example, individuals who lie at work to further their career, people who lie on auto or home insurance policies to create a cheaper quotation, um, individuals who lie on their resumes to gain access to job interviews, individuals who engage in um, providing fake documents for their customers or clients, um, or uh, salesmen who engage in deceptive tactics to win sales by not informing the clients of the full facts, or people who cheat on a professional basis, example, their tax returns, tests, expenses, claims, safety reports, etc. And the list goes on and on. The highlight, this highlights the fact that 
it's unrealistic to suggest that cheating, deception, and dishonesty can be isolated in neat compartments in relation to professionalism and integrity, simply because there is a fine line between honesty and deception, and it's very easy to cross that line depending on individual circumstances. At this point, I'll um, hand over to Navam to continue the discussion. Thank you, Navsi. You've raised some excellent points there about the universal nature of cheating at an individual level. And when we begin to project this thought process to the arena of professional sports, we see that human weaknesses clearly have widespread influence given that sports cheating begins long before the match actually starts. So let's take a, a brief look at the prevailing views regarding drug use within the sporting industry as as we know it today. Critics of the existing system maintain that the crusade against doping in sports has failed because drug use remains widespread among elite athletes. Furthermore, the anti-doping agency completely missed the Russian conspiracy in 2014 until a whistleblower stepped forward. And certain sectors support a doping free for all by using substances which do not pose health risks. And the opponents of this particular approach argue that this would reduce competitive sports to a scenario where athletes will be taking the most effective stimulants and consequently would expose youth and amateur sports to open drug abuse. And anti-doping enforcement agencies argue that drug taking can never be eradicated and that additional investigative powers and financial support will be required on an ongoing basis. And there's also an argument to suggest that participants and high-level representatives within the sports industry are actually in a state of denial and they don't want the anti-doping system to work because it affects long-term lucrative sponsorship and endorsement deals. And we also know that countries across the world have largely accepted the idea that the manipulation of sports performance is an undesirable process, but that it requires control, regulation, and even banning. Options for banning include a variety of thought processes, such as doping in sports is cheating and unfair. It harms athletes. It harms non-doping athletes. It harms society. And it ban and the ban should be enforceable. Doping represents a perversion of sports, and it's unnatural and dehumanizing. But despite all these facts, the international sports community has recognized for many years the dangers of all forms of doping. But it's only in recent years that serious attention has been paid to this very, very controversial uh, matter. And this is mainly due to uh, pressure from from very, very large-scale sponsors. And over the past few years, measures are constantly being updated and we've seen effective regulatory mechanisms put into place for the detection and control of drug-based doping in sports. So now that we have an understanding of current viewpoints, let's, let's turn our attention to a crucial component of this debate. What role does ethics play in helping to explain the role of cheating in sports? Firstly, high-performance athletes and executives have very similar personality traits, and they share common goals which drive them to achieve their objectives at any cost. And this inevitably makes them more susceptible to cheating. 
And given that many top sports industries have now become multi-billion dollar businesses due to lucrative TV rights and sponsorship deals. Is it now time for the sporting industry as a whole to become more morally or ethically accountable, as is the case with other business sectors? Or should other avenues be explored? And to understand the role that ethics plays in sports and competition is first necessary to make an important distinction between two key points. First is gamesmanship and sportsmanship. So let's look at gamesmanship. From this perspective, athletes and coaches are encouraged to bend the rules wherever possible in order to gain a competitive advantage over the opponent. And the idea is to pay less attention to the safety and welfare of their competitors. And some of the key principles of gamesmanship are that winning is everything. It's only described as cheating if you get caught. It's the referee's job to catch wrongdoers and the athletes and coaches have no responsibility to follow the given rules and the end will always justify the means. And some examples of gamesmanship include faking a foul or injury, attempting to get ahead in a race and and tampering with equipment such as picking at the stitching from a cricket ball. And also we've seen covert personal fouls such as pulling or grabbing a player and inflicting pain on an opponent with the intention of knocking him or her out of the game. And the use of uh, the PEDs, as I was just described in NAV C-section, and also uh, another example of gamesmanship could be taunting or intimidating an opponent. And all of these examples that place great emphasis on the outcome of the game rather than the manner in which it's actually played. So then we turn our attention to sportsmanship. And this is a more ethical approach to athletics than gamesmanship because under this system, healthy competition is seen as a way of promoting personal honor and character. And the goal in sportsmanship is not simply to win, but to pursue victory by giving an athlete's best effort. And ethics in sport requires four key virtues, fairness, integrity, responsibility, and respect. And we'll quickly go through these because it provides a context to our final argument. So let's start with fairness. The idea is that all athletes and coaches should follow established rules and guidelines of their respective sport and that teams that seek an unfair competitive advantage over their opponent should create an, will eventually create an uneven playing field. And, and what this does, it violates the integrity of the sport. So then we have respect. We know that all athletes should respect their teammates, their opponents, coaches and officials. And equally, coaches should do the same for players, opponents and officials. And the sportsmanship model is based on the idea that sport encourages a character development, which in turn influences the moral code of the wider community. And both of these points offer guiding principles for how participants should compete in sports. The issues of fairness and respect are key indicators which influence personal, moral and the ethical behavior of athletes in and out of competition. And Given this uh, brief introduction, some commentators have argued for a 
what, what's referred to as a bracketed morality within sports. And what this refers to is, is, is a kind of moral pause or, or tolerance and acceptance of cheating within the entire system. And this approach believes that sport and competition should be kept separate from real life situations. And therefore, athletes wouldn't be constrained by moral or ethic, ethical codes. Instead, sports offers athletes an outlet for their primal aggression and a selfish need for recognition and respect gained through the conquering of an opponent. And accordingly, aggression and victory are the only virtues which are upheld by athletes. So, for instance, a football player may be described as mean and aggressive on the pitch, but in reality, that this person would be kind and gentle in everyday life. And his violent disposition on the field is not wrong in the true sense of the word because he's actually playing a game and he's part of an amoral reality that is governed by this principle of winning, which is all pervasive. And an ethical approach to sport, however, which is the, 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 the complete opposite, this rejects bracketed morality and honours the game and, and one's opponent through toughness and fair play. Effectively, what it means is that playing by the rules and their meaning should be done in order to foster respect for one's opponent and therefore to push oneself to the limit. But to be sportsmanlike, it requires athletes and coaches to take responsibility for their performance as well as actions on the field. And often athletes and coaches will make excuses as to why they, they lost the game. The most popular excuse is to blame the officials. And the honourable thing is to focus only on those aspects of the game which can be controlled, i.e. one's performance, and, and to question an individual whether they could have done any better. So there's two key points here, which is... Uh, individual responsibility this requires that players and coaches can be should be up to date on the rules governing their sport and then we also have responsibility which demands that players and coaches should conduct themselves in an honorable way off the field as well as on it and this discussion on ethics is vital in reevaluating our earlier thoughts exactly because this, this is how athletes cheat. And, and what we'll do in the next segment is present the argument in a completely new perspective by framing the discussion in terms of a chronological experience and the, the athlete's formative experience as they were growing up as a child. So we're just coming up to a short break now. There'll be much more to come in the next segment. We'll see you shortly on the other side. Thanks very much. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. If you are working on your path to enlightenment, may we suggest another guide point to help you get there? 
It's Soul Healing Conversations with your host, Roz Kincaid. Roz and her guests are making this show a safe place to find balance, healing, and transformation. You'll learn how to manifest the best version of your life. Make sure you join Roz every week for Soul Healing Conversations, live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you tired of feeling disconnected and shut down? Since every choice has ripple effects, lasting happiness is a product of the choices we make each day. Tune in to Rise and Shine, not just for mornings anymore. Lorianne Rising and Uncle Mark Olmsted introduced you to authors, musicians, artists, and innovators, all actively engaged in designing a world that works for everyone. Make sure you're along for the ride, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. It's great to have your company. So in the last section, we discussed the reasons why athletes cheat, and we introduced uh, a new perspective in terms of Reevaluating uh, the reasons uh, an athlete will, will cheat, and, and we did so from um, a child development viewpoint. So let, let's look at these four perspectives. The first one is formative behavior. Now, although lying and cheating are separate issues, it follows that in order to cheat, one has to lie first. But we know that lying is an integral part of human behavior and also part of a child's proper development. And two eminent Canadian researchers, Talwa and Lee, found that the ability to lie unfolds during the childhood years, and it's done so in three phases. And the first one is called the primary lie, and this occurs around the age of two or three, while toddlers are able to make statements that they know are false. The secondary lie occurs around the age of four, when children are able to distinguish their thinking from that of those around them and and therefore they're aware that they can fool the person that they're conversing with. And the tertiary lie manifests itself around the age of seven or eight, becoming more credible because of the development of logical thinking at this age of reason. And because reasoning does not always succeed in the adult world, it's it's, um, it's done so in very extreme circumstances. We know that lying to deceive one's opponents can save oneself. And we've seen this uh, in, in uh, th- many cases throughout history where survivors of disasters such as war and genocides have testified that, that humans use lying as a survival reflex. And in turn, this skill can be exploited as a real art such as in real life, such as acting in the theatre or even in politics. And it should also be noted that if the majority majority of us have already committed an ordinary lie, no matter how trivial, the process of lying 
maliciously is often regarded as as the preserve of a minority of people. And it's often attributed to a psych- psychiatric condition known as mythomania, which translates into a compulsion to lie without necessarily being aware of it. And the second perspective that we focus on is cheating for the sake of the game itself. And this is where play is an essential element to the overall development of the child, and it remains a fundamental activity throughout our lives. And the, the need to play is innate in humans and animals when we reach adulthood because it takes on a much more complex form and it continues to drive some of our behaviors as we go forward through life. So lying is, is as a game, it can be physical or mental, but it's not designed for a functional purpose. It's, it's done so to entertain oneself or to take pleasure in it. And this is where the idea of a game theory comes in, because cheating is built around the notion of a game, because it relates to playing with the rules and and also is born out of manipulation and making use of those imperfect rules in, in the hope of winning. And this has also been related to a similar concept called the cheater's high, which relates to ideas of pleasure and and this approach argues that cheating leads to feelings of personal satisfaction by creating positive feelings rather than remaining honest all the time and and this is despite the fact that cheaters initially expressed negative feelings uh, themselves about unethical behavior so therefore if cheating can be seen as a game it's a risky game certainly due to the risk of being caught and punished. But we know that risk-taking can be exciting as well, especially for those who thrive on, on, on such strong emotions. And it leads to the release of adrenaline and dopamine, which stimulate the mind as well as the body. So the third perspective is the fact that there's an argument that everyone is doing it. So why not? And From this perspective, we see that humans are social animals and and the group effect of cheat is a powerful incentive when the opportunity arises. Most individuals will cheat a little bit, but serious or recurring cheating is the work of a a very, very few people and a minority. So what we see is that cheating can be seen as a contagious disease almost, and especially when it's exposed to the presence of other cheaters, people are more likely to commit the act. And this phenomenon of contagion or imitation is evident when individuals believe that they've been a victim of some type of injustice and their moral principles have been violated, which then leads someone to imitate the behavior. And, and, And we've seen these kind of... Uh, actions being taken in sporting occasions uh, across the um, over the years so essentially what happens is that by convincing oneself that one's uh, opponent would have done the same this becomes a legitimate excuse and many people use it to justify guilt and shame when their moral code is violated And the fourth perspective that we're looking at is that we were all students at one point and early school life provides the structural formation of society as a whole. And and studies on academic cheating show that the majority of students have already cheated at least once during their school career. 
And this forms a constant trend over time as people approach adulthood. And factors which encourage the use of cheating at various levels of the school system are the fear of being sanctioned by teachers, rejection or humiliation by peers, considering it to be commonplace behavior or even socially acceptable. Um, there are situations when where there's conflict with parents and um, students often have a motivation to achieve a better grade. And, and then there are also those students who have a motivation for a better grade, but they want to put in the least amount of effort. And we must also consider the norms and values of the time that we're living in as, as incubators for cheating, as well as the education system that guides us. Because we live in a legal society that promotes moral ideals and our internal perceptions of performance, competition and success all create a warped sense of reality based on the ideas that we've just discussed in this child development theory, such as fear, loss, pressure, anxiety, poor self-esteem, etc., just to name a few. And all of these are valid reasons to explain the, the initial motivations for cheating. So let's try and make some sense of everything that we've said so far. Although most people respect and admire elite athletes for their high levels of dedication, their discipline and commitment to standards of sporting excellence, it seems genuinely odd when society is repelled by their perceived moral or ethical failures. Given the discussion that was given by Nafsi earlier on that large swathes of society, they wouldn't hesitate one minute to engage in some form of deception to achieve personal or monetary gratification. So now that we've reevaluated our original thoughts on why athletes cheat and, and we have a, uh, a, a very good background, uh, an ethical background to this discussion, we can, we can now ask, what exactly is the source of society's strong moral objection to doping? And there are many ways to address this question, but if we ask the layperson on the street why doping is objectionable, the most common answer would be something like this. They would say that doping is wrong because it's a form of cheating. And it's this cheating argument that represents one of the most common rationales used against substance abuse in sports. Yet, given the universal nature of cheating in our everyday lives, why does it appear to be so morally repugnant to, to people in wide, um, widespread society? And this response raises fundamental questions immediately. Firstly, in what sense, if any, can doping be said to represent a form of cheating? And secondly, if doping is a form of cheating, why do we think it's wrong? And it's important to stress that the, the significance of answering these questions, because as a society, if we do not have a clear idea about how doping represents cheating, then how can we expect policymakers to continue to pursue policies which address the issue of, of doping? And presently, there are two main themes which define this argument that doping is a form of cheating. Firstly, it involves breaking the rules. And secondly, the, the athlete gains an unfair competitive advantage, which is not accessible by the opponent. So let's take a look at both of these arguments. Let's firstly look at breaking the rules. So the use of PEDs are against 
the established rules set by organizations such as the IOC and, and WADA. We, we know this, but if the rules prohibit the use of illicit drugs such as steroids or growth hormones, then we can describe this, this booster as, as a form of cheating because it obviously violates the rules. But one problem with this approach is that drug regulatory rules are constantly being changed so that the drug in question may be prohibited for a certain period of time and then it's followed up by new rules and uh, new criteria. But still we haven't addressed the central issue of what is it that makes rule violation in the case of doping a form of cheating. Is it the moral objection or the violation of constitution rules relating to a particular sport. Example, a cross-country runner using a, a motorbike uh, halfway through a race. And let's say we agree that doping is rule violation. It, it follows that breaking the rules is not necessarily a form of cheating. And, and one example of this is a, is a, is a player using time-wasting tactics in, in, in a game of soccer. And similarly, the same logic applies with the act of uh, covertness or deception within doping. Because in this scenario, doping cannot be uh, thought of as cheating. And let's look at this, this next argument about unfair advantage. And the, the argument here is that the, the, uh, there is an unfair or competitive advantage which is unavailable to, to the opponent. So to level the playing field, what, what can we do? Well, one answer is that we can simply change the existing rules to allow all athletes equal access to PEDs. And what this would do was address the issue of cheating fairness because all of the athletes would gain e equal uh, access to uh, the PEDs which are available. And furthermore, anti-doping rules are designed to protect clean athletes only. But when the majority of dopers manage to evade detection using an array of sophisticated doping methods, such as micro-doping or, or simply by uh, the, 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 the flaws which exist in the testing procedures, what this does, it actually favors the so-called cheaters and it immediately disadvantages the, the law-abiding athletes. So overall, as discussed previously, there are many forms of cheating which involve rule violation, but breaking rules should not cloud our judgment by, by linking it with moral assessments about inappropriate behavior and cheating. And the key point here is that violating a rule is considered illegitimate only when the rule in question is legitimate. So just for the benefit of the listener, I'm just going to say that again because this is a very, very key point that violating a rule is considered illegitimate only when the rule in question is legitimate in the first place. So from this, it seems clear that rational justification should be employed to enforce anti-doping rules such as health and safety um, measures. And Rather, it's, it's the mere breaking of a rule which then leads us to a false conclusion that doping is morally wrong. Alternatively, if the rules are inconsistent and they're changed at will, then there's no reason for athletes to endorse them. So, 
whatever one's view of anti-doping rules, the issue of cheating is an unjust sporting activity and, and it should never be labeled as a, as a purely bureaucratic issue. Because if, if doping constitutes a form of cheating, it should be banned because it's fundamentally wrong and not wrong because it's been prohibited. So let's turn to this second argument that doping is cheating because it creates an unfair advantage. The idea of unfair advantage represents one of the most common arguments used against doping. But the real question comes down to this. By, by the use of illicit drugs, does this amount to a moral wrong in the same way as sabotaging a match or uh, the physical intimidation of an opponent? Because both of these activities... Uh, use of drugs and sabotage are classified as cheating because their ultimate objective is to gain a competitive advantage. But how do we define competitive advantage when we know that it can be achieved through a variety of means such as different training methods or a coaching style, the equipment used, a particular diet or the doping methods uh, and substances which the athlete could be held responsible for. That said, a, comp a competitive advantage could easily be achieved through um, genetic means. So it could be an inherited or a genetic predisposition. And this may be natural endowments for which the athlete is not responsible for. Example, height, muscle mass, bone density, or the capacity of red blood cells to transport oxygen. And in this way, this affects their endurance and fatigue. And some of these advantages are thought to be fair, such as the training advantage, but then society thinks that others are considered to be unfair, such as the use of steroids. So if certain athletes, due to their genetic background, have more red blood cells which, with a higher capacity for carrying oxygen, should this be labelled as a competitive advantage, especially in sports such as uh, sprinting? But equally, at the same time, why is it considered cheating if an athlete gains the same advantage by using illicit drugs? The answer lies in the fact that society has already engineered this response by telling everyone that there's a clear distinction between unfair but acceptable competitive advantage and on the opposite side we have unfair and unacceptable advantage. And the trade-off between these two standpoints creates tensions in, in modern sports which are hard to overlook because we're already being predisposed to this moral judgment in relation to PEDs. And the real question becomes, should we call it cheating? Because if by definition many people are doing it, and, and so then we have to ask this, this very, very pertinent question, is it actually cheating? But also, these are issues which become very, very personal decisions. And, and, and we should remember that there's no logical reason for regulators to intervene in, in this type of scenario. So we believe that the argument in relation to cheating should be thought of as part of a competitive nature of sport, not something which is completely separate from it. So let's just wrap up and uh, look at a final analysis about PEDs in sports and is it cheating or should should we in fact be actually leveling the playing field so according to WADA figures from November 2016 each year around 3,000 athletes 
worldwide tested positive for banned substances. And this includes variety of sports such as soccer, American football, basketball, to name but a few. And there's hardly an area of sporting life where so-called cheating is not present. But the real question which arises is whether the use of PEDs should be allowed in sports in one form or another, given that organizations such as WADA and the IOC appear to be behind the curve in controlling substance abuse. And the reason for this is because PEDs are becoming much, much harder to detect due to a range of purpose-built chemical products designed for various outcomes. So, for instance, anabolic steroids are natural and synthetic derivatives of the male hormone testosterone. And there are other drugs such as growth hormones, which help provide a performance edge by bioengineering the body's ability to use and produce oxygen. And what we know is that most of these drugs, they mimic natural chemicals in the body. And Therefore, it's very, very hard, especially at competitive level, to detect them. And each year, top athletes earn millions of dollars in compensation and millions more in sponsorship and endorsements. And despite the risk of minor to life-threatening side effects, we know that the lure of success, the enormous financial and social rewards create an incentive to win at all costs, regardless of the fact that athletes know that PEDs can shorten their life. And the benefits of cheating far outweigh the penalties. Just look at a six-month to one-year ban in, in, in a competition because it's such a small price to pay when multi-million dollar contracts are at stake. And also, elite sport is not just about the thrill of watching players compete. It's also about being able to appreciate the extraordinary ability and performance of individuals who are literally in a league of their own in terms of raw talent. And the modern elite sport has become the preserve of the super gifted now. And in some ways, this unique scenario may be a, a factor of bias against those who are disadvantaged. And it puts them in a completely uh, a lower league. However, it requires more than just prime physique to, to reach the top. And we know that through through uh, various athletes such as Michael Phelps, uh, the um, Olympic swimmer, because there's talent, there's technique, there's good body mechanics combined with this ferocious um, urge and drive and this competitive spirit which delivers elite performance. So this is where the issue of PEDs enters the, the debate because regardless of the sport in which an elite athlete competes, greatness still requires excellent genes. And this makes a clear and compelling argument that biological manipulation through PEDs is a, is a means for some to level the playing field, as we've already discussed. And what this does is it creates a scenario where well-trained athletes are transformed into super-trained athletes. And, and they've been supercharged with PEDs. And given that the pay payoff is so huge, the question then becomes, why wouldn't they cheat? If Mother Nature didn't provide them with perfect genes, why not just alter them? And would the risk of PEDs be any worse than the, the existing pain of constant training? So the final point is that society loves winners. And no matter what the route to success is, and... For instance, let's look at Lance Armstrong. 
when he was winning the Tour de France, he was one of the most popular athletes in the world. And despite the swirling drug allegations around him, fans and sponsors just totally ignored them and, and they just got behind the hero. And this is because the same groups don't really care how athletes win. They just want them to continue winning. And let's go back to, to the beginning of the, uh, how we started this episode. We introduced this topic with the issue and the case of Ben Johnson, whose short-lived victory in Seoul was was such a uh, prominent uh, catalyst for the, for the issue of PEDs. And minutes after the race, then-Prime Minister Brian Mulroney phoned Johnson to tell him about the joyous rapture his win had caused back home in Canada. But there was to be no extended celebrations waiting for Johnson as he flew home from Seoul to Toronto. He was shamefully booed at the airport. And remarkably, Ben Johnson, the Canadian, suddenly became Ben Johnson, the Jamaican Canadian, in a matter of hours. And it was a painful reminder that his citizenship, this marker of national identity that he held on to, just ebbed away. In, in moments as an entire nation turned their back on an unwanted overnight hero. And we can see this, this is supported by a 2018 article by the Toronto Star, which also cast doubt on Ben Johnson's 1988 Olympic drug test because it contained altered lab codes and, and hand-scored re revisions. And we know that Ben Johnson admitted cheating to the Dublin Inquiry in 1989. He also admitted taking regular doses of steroids, mainly uh, from, the uh, from the advice of his now-deceased trainer, Charlie Francis. But the thing is that Johnson still has an issue with the entire process, which unraveled in Seoul 1988 because five of the other seven runners in 98 in 1988 were eventually caught cheating too and to this day it hurts Ben Johnson deeply that he was the only one singled out for public shaming Ben Johnson may have lost a gold medal but certainly not his pride given the tireless charity work that he's done over the years and the way he's maintained his character and the way he's maintained his public image with such humility uh, and the projects he's he's um, uh, supported, such as raising money for AIDS, orphans in Africa. So this side of Ben Johnson will always be sidelined because society feels more comfortable wrestling with the long shadow of an unwanted anti-hero. So now we ask, is it not time to welcome back this Canadian hero from the cold? Because from this perspective, it was all always and always was, a, he was a, a Canadian sprinter who won the Olympic gold in Seoul 1988. And that's all we have time for today, for this episode. Thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. We really appreciate your company today. Just a quick mention that the show is syndicated to iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn and Google Play. Simply subscribe via their apps to make sure that you never miss a show. And to contact us, Go online at gmc-radio.com and you can send your feedback on any of the issues that we've been discussing today by emailing us at info at gmc-radio.com. As always, you can like, share and comment via our social channels, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thanks very much. Thank you. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. 
Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon. We'll see you soon.